right, we're continuing our study on Christ revealed in the Old Testament. And uh, we have covered all of the Old Testament prophecies of Christ. We've covered the personal appearances of Christ, known as Christophanies. And we're currently engaged in the third big category, which is Christ revealed in the types of the Old Testament. Types, remember, are symbols that point to either the person or work of Christ in a symbolic way. And we are we're making subcategories of all of the types. There's just so many types in the Old Testament. So I've categorized them in seven different categories. We've covered two of those, which are uh, Christ revealed in Old Testament things and Christ revealed in Old Testament structures. And we're currently going through Christ revealed in some of the most important events of the Old Testament. And what we've identified is the event category mostly points to Christ's work rather than the person of Christ. Of course, whenever you, when you, whenever you have a focus on the work of Christ, the, the person of Christ is the one accomplishing that work. So it's not like we're leaving out the person of Christ but the, the highlighting of the event is a focus on what Christ will accomplish or from the Old Testament perspective, what the Messiah would accomplish when he arrived and did his work in the earth. And uh, we have spent most of our time so far looking at the original creation week in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. We saw that the different days of creation, each in their own special way, an important way, a highlight pointing forward to different aspects of the work of Christ. So we're moving a little bit forward now. We've finished the creation week. We're looking at the next great event, of course, in world history after creation, and that is the flood. The flood is a super important event in the book of Genesis, ancient history, but theologically, as it points to Christ, it's a super important event, and it's kind of a complex event. Um, some of the things that we're studying in our, in our lists of the various categories are just highlighting one specific aspect of Christ. But uh, the flood is a, is a kind of a crossover event where there are more than one of our categories of types that we're studying that are identified or highlighted for us. So in the flood account, I see some overlapping going on. I'll just mention, just, just for the sake of our uh, big picture overview, and then we're going to focus on the event itself. Uh, but uh, you have uh, Christ as represented in a specific person. Uh, that belongs, of course, to the people category. We haven't gotten to that category yet. Uh, Christ revealed in the structure of the ark itself. We did study the ark and the structure of the ark uh, when we went through the structures of the Old Testament. And then um, the patterning of how a specific kind of thing occurs over and over again throughout the Old Testament. I'll highlight that in just a moment. And then the flood as an event, which is what we'll uh, camp on a little bit and spend a little bit more time on. So in terms of, and, and I'm just going to briefly cover these other three uh, because our focus is on events right now, but just to see the overlapping connection between these categories, um, who is the person in the flood event that would rightly, symbolically point forward to and represent Christ? It's got to, of course, be Noah. And uh, we see this highlighted specifically in chapter 6 of the book of Genesis, and uh, we'll read starting in verse 5. This is kind of the, the context, the build-up to the introduction of Noah. In verse 5, Noah has not yet been introduced, uh, but the Lord wants us to understand why it was necessary for his spotlight to land on Noah in the midst of this uh, this world circumstance, this crisis that the world was in. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And meaning that with all of the, the great purpose 
that is laid out in the original creation week as we just recently studied, um, the, the introduction of sin into the world and then the growth and the proliferation of sin had so ruined that original pattern and purpose of the Lord that it brought the Lord to grief. So in verse seven, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I've made them. And of course, this is the Lord's, the Lord's um, declaration now of a great coming judgment. That judgment we know will be the flood. And then verse eight, Noah is introduced in the midst of this crisis. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, the found favor is that the, the Lord looked on Noah of all of the individuals that were alive on the face of the earth at that moment in history, just taking a snapshot of that specific moment, Noah was the only human being that the Lord looked on favorably. The exclusive and unique individual among all of humanity at that point in history. Later in another portion in the Old Testament where there's a reference to the three most righteous individuals of all of Old Covenant history, Noah is named among those three. And so we see here this highlighting of Noah's different, that the, the world and all of humanity is corrupted by sin, but Noah stands out as distinct from them. Now, of course, that just that characteristic of Noah standing out among all of humanity specifically points forward to Christ because we understand that Christ is the unique human being in all of human history, even more so than Noah, but Noah symbolically uh, represents him in this way. And then the second thing in verse 8, which is, which is in the text, but it's kind of hidden to our sight unless we go one level deeper in our study, and that is we've done studies before on the significance of Bible names and the meaning of Bible names and how in Bible times and Bible culture, uh, names carried spiritual significance in a way that names don't in our culture today. It doesn't mean that your name doesn't have meaning and significance, it does, but the culture that we live in no longer attaches any significance to names other than it sounds good, it's popular, you know, I, it, that's a cool sounding name, so that's, you know, that's the name I'm gonna name my child. Um, in, in these days and in this culture, and this is true throughout the Old Testament on into the New Testament era even, um, people name their children with an, an attention to the meaning that that name represented. So the name Noah is a significant name in terms of the, the meaning that it portrays and how it ultimately connects to the work of Christ. Um, the word or the name Noah means literally rest. So as as we would read the text if we were Hebrew readers, we'd read this. But rest, capital R, because it's a personal name, not just the word rest, but rest found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, why would rest be a quality that symbolically points forward to Christ in a significant way? Well, what we learn later in the New Covenant, the New Testament, is that the work of Christ has accomplished what was necessary for our salvation. And in the accomplishment of that work, he then ascended to heaven, sat down on the throne of God in order to, from that point forward, rest in the accomplishment of his work. Not resting in the sense, as we've talked many times before, of I'm worn out, I'm tired, you know, I, I used up all of my energy, but rest in the sense of nothing else needs to be added in order to accomplish what needed to be accomplished. The work is finished, the work is done. And so even in his name, Noah points forward to Christ in that particular way. Now, uh, let's move from chapter six. And I, I, I trust you're familiar with the flood story. 
Obviously, the rest of chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8 are all of the actual events of the flood coming upon the earth. And um, let's look at chapter 9. And as you're turning there, I'll just briefly uh, recount and connect the rest of the threads that I mentioned before in terms of uh, a special person representing Christ, a structure, and a pattern. Uh, the last thing in terms of the connection to Noah pointing forward to Christ, Noah in his building of the ark effectively entered into a category, a unique and special category of a, a saving work in the earth. So Noah was, was assigned by the Lord to build the ark and having constructed the ark, he was instructed by the Lord to bring his family into the ark those that were, that were related by family to him. And in that, he effectively, because once they were in the ark, the Lord himself shut the door, the floodwaters fell, and um, the entire rest of humanity was wiped out in that circumstance. And because Noah was faithful, and because Noah finished the saving work of building the ark, Therefore, he effectively saved all of humanity. Now, of course, it's all by God's grace. It's all by God's assignment. It's all by the Lord giving him the directions and the instructions and the ability to do what he did. But nevertheless, Noah's actions saved you and I. Because had all of humanity been wiped out in the events of the flood, you and I never would have been brought to life in this world because we all descended from one member of Noah's family or the other. So he effectively saved humanity and the Lord rebuilt humanity from Noah and his family. And not only was he then functioning as a symbolic savior, but those who were saved by his actions were his family in the same way that those who were saved by the, the, the sacrificial work of Christ are the spiritual family of God, those that are connected to him by faith, which makes us sons and daughters of God. All right, then the second, uh, the structure, and we've already studied this, so I don't need to go into detail on it. The ark itself functions as a symbol of the saving refuge from the judgment that comes upon the earth, and in that sense, pictures the result of the, of the work of Christ so the ark really is a, an image of the church, which is the saving refuge from the judgment coming upon humanity. But the church only exists because of the work of Christ in the same way that the ark only existed because of the work of Noah. Uh, the patterning in the ark, uh, we, we've looked at several of the patterns in our, in our study of the structure, but the one that I've highlighted before and I want to remind you of, um, how many entry points were there to the ark? One, one door in the side of the ark, only one door. Practically speaking, it didn't even make sense for there only to be one door because there were animals being brought uh, by, the, by the work of the Lord and animals uh, being preserved alive along with Noah's family. It would have been, practically speaking, it would have been much better to have maybe like three doors on each side of the ark uh, to have all of these animals stream into the ark. They were all funneled through this one single door. That single door, of course, is a pattern that exists through all of the great saving structures in Old Covenant history and even into New Covenant uh, reality. So uh, remember we studied the, um, the Garden of Eden, only one entry and exit point to the Garden of Eden. We studied the tabernacle in the wilderness, only one door into the tabernacle. There's no back door to the tabernacle, only the front door. The temple, same exact concept being portrayed in the, in the architectural structure of the temple. And of course, the same is true for the new covenant saving structure of the Lord. What is the new covenant saving structure? The church, which is the spiritual temple of the Lord. And there's only one door into the church. And we're not talking about this door uh, at the end of this aisle here, in a physical sense, that door being Christ himself, as he uh, described in the Gospel of John, I am the door. 
And there is no other way to enter into a saving uh, refuge with the Lord than through the door of Christ. All right, so this brings us up to the event itself. And uh, the first part of the event is obvious, which is the judgment, the worldwide judgment that creates the need for a saving event and a saving work. But now I want to fast forward to the end of the flood. And we're looking now in Genesis chapter 9. And we read, and this is uh, in chapter 8, the flood has subsided. There's a process by which the Lord brings Noah and his family out of the ark. And now they're, they're once again on dry, dry ground, dry land. And the next part of the story is God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, and it's these words that are meant to catch our attention in particular, said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, for those who are familiar with the book of Genesis and even familiar with our recent study in the creation week, that, that declaration and blessing that the Lord pronounced upon Noah and his sons should ring a bell for us. And it should cause us to think about uh, an almost identical phrasing uh, back in the creation week. So let's keep our place here in chapter 9. Well, actually, we didn't even need to keep our place. Let's just jump back to chapter 1. And let's read verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. Now, remember in Genesis 9, at, in the aftermath of the flood, God blessed, as, as it says in, in Genesis 9, God blessed Noah and his sons. So the target of the blessing in Genesis 9 is different, but the act of blessing is identical and meant to ring a bell of familiarity and similarity to us. God blessed them, that's Adam and Eve here, and God said to them what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The exact wording that the Lord then rehearses and repeats to Noah and his sons. He doesn't add in Genesis 9 the additional words that continue on in verse 28, uh, and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. But those, the quoting of the first part of this declaration is meant to then draw a, 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 a direct line of connection between Genesis 1 and Genesis 9. So Genesis 1, verse 28, when God pronounces this blessing, it's on which day of the creation week that he makes this pronouncement? Anybody? Day number six, which is the last day that God did any work in the original creation week. And that is the day, of course, that uh, God created humanity. And on the day that he created Adam and Eve, he then pronounced this blessing upon them. So it's kind of like the crown or the culmination of the progressive days of the creation week. It's all been building up to this grand finale of creation week where he creates humanity and then pronounces this blessing, which includes a commission. So you have a commission to go and do something. The Lord is giving his first direction to human beings and a blessing upon them as they faithfully and obediently carry out this commission. Then we fast forward to chapter 9, and I said, don't keep your place, but let's go back there after all and just read it again, even though we just read it. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What is the connection between Genesis 1 on the sixth day relating to Adam and Eve, and now you have Noah and his sons in the aftermath of the worldwide judgment of the flood. What's the connection and why does the Lord say, 
the same exact thing to Noah that he said in the beginning to Adam. What's the connection? They're both creation connected. So the, the Genesis 1 passage was the, the culmination, the final thing that was needing to be accomplished in the original week of creation. And having accomplished that, then God rested from all of his work. Now he speaks to the man whose name is rest and gives him an almost identical commission. And in giving an, a, a, a similar or almost identical commission to Noah as he gave to Adam, he is essentially portraying that just like I started a creation work here in Genesis 1, here in the aftermath of the flood, I am starting a, what we can only call now a new creation work. But this new creation work is focused on Noah and his sons rather than on Adam. Now, from there, let's turn over to a couple of New Testament passages. First one is in 2 Peter. It wasn't too long ago that we studied this in home church as part of our exhortation studies. 2 Peter chapter 3. And we're just going to lean on Peter's connecting these two things that I've uh, been describing. 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to read from verse... Three, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? They're referring here to the coming of the Lord. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. This is not Peter making a declaration that that's the story of history. This is the scoffer's description of their failed understanding of the flow of history. The scoffers are saying as part of their objection to the work of the Lord in history, they're saying ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. I mean, there's nothing that's really changed in history. And Peter's point is, in verse 5, now a counterpoint to the scoffers, for they, the scoffers, deliberately overlook this fact. The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Here he's quoting the first three verses of, or making reference to the first few verses of Genesis chapter 1. And that by means of these, the waters, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. This is Peter referencing the flood, but connecting it to the original week of creation. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Verse 7 is just Peter saying, look, there's going to be another worldwide judgment, but the second worldwide judgment will be connected to the second coming, and it will be a judgment not of a water deluge, but a, a judgment of fire. But his point in terms of the water is that he connects the events of the flood to the original week of creation. So both are creation events in the sense that the flood washed clean all the defilements of sin as evident in the lives of fallen sinful human beings and God gave the world a brand new start again in the Genesis flood aftermath. All right, last passage. This one I know you're all very familiar with. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I think I've made this emphasis before, but I want to emphasize it in a way that's not as obvious in our translation, but should be um, in our perspective. All right, so we're reading from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, 
If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. All right, so Paul specifically uses creation terminology. And in verse 17, he makes this statement in our translation, our ESV translation. And most translations are very similar to how the ESV has it phrased. But this is the way it's written in our translation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What, what is our takeaway of that? What, what does that sound like Paul is describing? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He is just, don't think in terms of male or female, just think in terms of the person that's in view as being in Christ. That person is a new creation. That's, that's what our translation emphasizes. It's emphasizing that if a person comes to know the Lord, then that person individually and personally is a new creation in the sense that God has taken out the old heart replaced it with a brand new heart. That's the essence of the saving work of Christ in the, in the life of an individual. That's all true. It's just not what Paul actually says. So our translation reads, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And um, in the original text, the emphasis is more like this. I'm going to read it in a more strictly literal reading of how Paul wrote it in the Greek text. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, behold, a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, behold, a new creation. The emphasis isn't on when you're saved, God makes you a new creature. That's true. And, and the, the passage that Paul writes doesn't doesn't undermine that truth and that reality. But there's something much larger that Paul is addressing here and describing than simply your individually being made new in the experience of salvation. When he says, if anyone's in Christ, behold a new creation, he's connecting the new creation to Christ, not the new creation to the individual that's now saved. That's the point of emphasis. His emphasis is, Christ's work has begun in history parallel to what we're experiencing naturally speaking on the surface of the earth. A new creation has already begun. So we live, and theologians have, have tried, to, tried to describe a very complex concept by, by making it as simple as possible, and the idea is that there are two creations that now exist in creation simultaneously. One, in a sense, on top of the other. I say on top, not in a physical sense, but in the sense that one is greater than the other one. So ever since the original week of creation, this present natural creation has existed. And yes, in the flood and the aftermath of the flood, there's a sense of newness to that present physical creation, but it's still natural, it's still physical. And what's the problem with the creation that we live in even to this day? It's fallen and it's still under the influences of sin. And every single time a human being sins in this world, I think how many, what's the current population number? Is it up to... 8 billion yet, somewhere between 7 and 8 billion. Think of this, 7 or 8 billion people alive on planet Earth today. How many of them sinned today? Every single one of them, including you and me. Now, you know, your sin may not have been as great as others, and I hope it wasn't, it shouldn't be. But nevertheless, it might have been with an attitude, it might have been with just for a moment in your private thoughts, thinking of something that the Lord was not pleased with and didn't bring glory to him. Maybe it was a word that you spoke inappropriately or inadvertently. Maybe it was an attitude. Maybe it was an action. But one way or the other, we all crossed the line of God's perfect holiness somewhere during the course of living our life in this world today. And then there are others who were much, even much more sinful than that. 
So think of it, every single time a human being sins, there is an increasing failure of this present natural creation. And so in Christ, God began a new creation work. It's just not physically visible yet, but it will be as the New Testament describes for us. There's going to come a moment when the Lord returns and when he returns with this fiery judgment. Now, instead of a watery judgment, he is going to burn up all of the failed original creation and replace it with what is called a new heavens and a new, new earth wherein dwells righteousness, meaning there will no longer be any fallen, failed, sinful influences within that new creation. So right now we have both creations running parallel to each other and we are part of the natural physical creation, the fallen one, as long as we live in these bodies, but we are also blessed uniquely among all of human beings as those who are part of the saved, we are blessed to be part of, we have been, we've been introduced into the new creation as well. So the flood simply points forward to this in an awesome way and shows that the ultimate goal of Christ's saving work is not just to individually save us, but to begin a new creation and to introduce us into that new creation work. All right, that ends our consideration of the flood as a, as a symbolic event of the saving work of Christ. Let's look now, we have just enough time for one more tonight, so let's go back to Genesis again. This one now is in chapter 22, and it's a story that I think we're all very familiar with. Uh, so as we revisit this, some of this is gonna be very familiar to you and you will already know it well. And then there may be a detail in here that you've never noticed before that might enhance your appreciation of this story. So we're now in the time period of Abraham, the original man that God formed what we call the old covenant relationship with, gave him special promises. And one of those promises was that uh, his descendants, Abraham's natural descendants from his own flesh uh, would be the covenant people of God throughout the duration of what we call the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. And we all understand, we know the story well. There was a problem, of course, and the problem was God chose to give that promise to Abraham about his descendants being the covenant people of God. He chose to give that promise to Abraham much later in Abraham's life than it made any natural sense to have him receive that promise. Uh, he gave the promise to Abraham. Do you remember how old was he when he first received the promise from the Lord? 75 years old. And the point of the story was he was past child-producing years and his wife was past child-bearing years. The Lord gives him this promise at 75 and then actually fulfills it at what age? Now, how old is Abraham when, the, when it's time for fulfillment of the promise? 99 years old. And his wife, 90 years old. And neither one of them, certainly by now, it's very obvious, neither one of them has the capacity from a natural physical standpoint to bear a child, a child of promise, a child to to fulfill the promise of the Lord, showing that the Lord always keeps his promises. When he makes a promise, he never fails to fulfill it. And yet the Lord delayed that long twice in order to show that this child that was coming into the earth was a special child, a spiritual fulfillment of the promise of God child. God had to literally intervene and change the natural course of Abraham and Sarah's life in order to produce this child, and that child is Isaac. Now, in chapter 22, we have a shocking interruption to Abraham's anticipation of how the promise of God is going to be fulfilled, because the promise wasn't just you will have one child, but your descendants will be 
the focal point of God's covenant blessings for all the generations to follow, which implies Isaac's going to grow up and he's going to have children. And then his children are going to have children and their children are going to have children. And God's going to watch over them and bless all of them. But here we have this story, the famous story of the Lord requiring Abraham to take his son Isaac, the son of promise, and to sacrifice him. So let's let's read the story starting in verse 1 of Genesis 22. I'm going to just read through the story and then I'm going to go back and just highlight specific verses and make uh, important points about those highlights. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him on the third day. Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? This is Isaac asking, where's the, where's the sacrifice? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. So what we have there is there's no, there's no, uh, uh, there's no verbal explanation at this point from Abraham to Isaac saying, uh, son, I, I, I wanted you to know, you're actually the sacrifice. Um, he's leaving his son somewhat in the dark at this moment or at this point in the story. Verse 9, when they came to the place in which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Now, um, we did a study in our second segment of Christ in the Old Testament on the Old Testament appearances of Christ. We, we studied the Christophanies, the personal appearances of Christ before he incarnated as a human being. And this is one of those that we saw. The angel of the Lord here in verse 11 is Jesus. He's not an angel. He is holding a special title called the angel of the Lord. This is a, a title never given to any ordinary angel. And this person is not an angel at all, but the Lord himself functioning as the ultimate messenger of the Lord. And he said, having called to his name just before he sacrifices his son, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. You remember the earlier statement, he offered to his son as an explanation, the Lord himself will provide a ram. And the Lord fulfilled that prophetic word. Abraham probably wasn't even aware when he said it that he was speaking prophetically, but he was, and the Lord did provide the replacement ram so that he didn't have to sacrifice his son. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring 
shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. All right, there's lots of connectivity points here to Christ. Not just the appearance of the angel of the Lord showing that Christ himself was actually personally present on the mountain that day as Abraham was obediently um, prepared to sacrifice his son. But Isaac is functioning here as a type of Christ. And when when we eventually get to the people category, I'll remind us of this and I'll include Isaac in our list of people that that signify Christ. But the reason I'm including it in our study of the events is that this isn't just Isaac as a person representing Christ. It's the action that's taking place focused on the actions of Abraham and the response of Isaac that is going to point forward in history to a similar yet greater relationship. What is the relationship, first and foremost, between Abraham and Isaac? It's practical, simple, straightforward, father and son. All right. So in this case, Abraham is not functioning as a type of Christ. His son Isaac is. So if his son Isaac is functioning as a type of Christ, and Abraham is playing a significantly important role in this story, who might he be pointing to as a symbolic representation. God the Father in relationship to God the Son. Here it's Abraham in relationship to Isaac. So we see the hint of this right at the beginning of the story in verse two. This is God speaking. Take your son, your only son, Isaac. Now, is it true that Isaac was the only son of Abraham? Yes and no. Good answer. Yes and no is the correct answer. Okay, so no, he's not the only son of Abraham in what sense? He has another son by the name of Ishmael who was not produced from his own loins exclusively with his wife Sarah. Ishmael was produced from his own loins, but only through Sarah's handmaiden and in a relationship that uh, was not the most appropriate. And it was their attempt in that moment, both Abraham and Sarah, as they're struggling to believe the possibility that God could fulfill his promise. And they're thinking to themselves, we are both way too old to be giving birth to children here, but let's do this. Let's, Let's at least have you try with my handmaiden, who's still of childbearing age. And of course, that's what happened and Ishmael was produced. So in that sense, Abraham has more than one son. But in another and greater and most important sense, why isn't Ishmael, by the Lord himself, being acknowledged and recognized in the category of a son of Abraham? Because it's the Lord that says, and he knows full well about Ishmael, earlier in the, or it might even be later, I forget exactly where, but the Lord himself is going to bless Ishmael and watch over him and promise Abraham, hey, I will take care of Ishmael. He's going to have a good life too. But what Ishmael cannot do is fulfill the covenant promises of the Lord, and he cannot represent the covenant going forward because the covenant is going to be exclusively funneled through the descendants of Abraham and Sarah only. And so in that sense, Isaac is the only son of Abraham. But the Lord emphasizes it, not just for the practicality of us understanding, Isaac has a different covenant relationship with the Lord than Ishmael does, but also because of specific ways that the Lord chooses to describe his relationship to Christ for us in fullness of new covenant revelation. Uh, Probably the single most famous verse in the entire Bible is what? John 3.16. Certainly the most well-known one. For God so loved the world that he gave who? His only begotten son. And the backstory of that giving is 
This was a great sacrificial giving on the part of God the Father because Christ is his dearly beloved. Christ is, is the apple of his eye. Christ is the most pleasing one of all human beings that have ever lived in all of human history. And God was willing to sacrifice that special one who has a unique and special relationship with God the Father in order to accomplish what only that son could accomplish, the saving work of sacrificing himself. So when we read here in verse two, take your son, your only son, Isaac, God the Father is speaking to Abraham by way of saying, you're going to sacrifice your son as a symbol of the sacrifice that I'm going to make in giving my son Christ when that time in history eventually comes. And he, he doubly emphasizes it with the phrase, whom you love. Meaning there's, a, there's no doubt Abraham loved Ishmael also. You know, he's a good father. He's a good man. He's not going to say, oh, I only love Isaac and I don't love Ishmael. Uh, but there is a special love because Isaac is, is given to him as a special blessing to fulfill the covenant promise of the Lord. All right, also in verse two, another detail connecting to Christ. And this is the one I mentioned earlier we might, uh, we might easily overlook if we didn't know the detail. Take your son, this is God speaking, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So God has a specific location picked out where the sacrifice of Isaac must take place. And it can't take place anywhere else on the surface of the earth and still bear the same symbolic meaning that this sacrifice of Isaac is meant to bear. So what is that meaning? We're going to jump and we will come back to Genesis 22. So keep your place there if you want. Jump with me forward to 2 Samuel 24. This is the days of King David now. And just for the sake of our time, there's a big problem at this point in David's story. The big problem is described for us at the beginning of chapter 24. I won't take time to read it, but the Lord is now angry with King David. And the reason is, King David has taken a census of all of the people of God. Simply, he's counted exactly how many people are in his kingdom. What would make the Lord so angry at David taking a census? We still take census in our, in our nation today. Most nations do. But why do we take a census? Why do we do that? It's so we can, we can make governmental decisions and plan the economy and determine, you know, we're going to have to we're going to have to manage this specific number of people. And for David, he's taking a census. And in this moment, he steps out of a relationship of faith with the Lord. And in this moment, he's leaning on the numbers of his kingdom for his confidence for the future rather than leaning on the Lord. And so the Lord is angry with King David. Now, because the Lord is angry and because it's so significant and there's a spiritual principle at stake here and David as the king has to learn this lesson so that the entire nation can learn the lesson through David, the Lord brings a judgment upon the nation and it's a significant one. It's a plague judgment and people are dying because of David's sin. And we'll start reading in verse 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. Can you imagine? 70,000 people have died from one ill-fated decision that the king makes. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, which, in, which tells us that the, the, the angel bringing the judgment from the throne of God, from heaven, 
is now not just going to stop with 70,000 Israelites dying. He's now intending to stretch the judgment and bring it upon the capital city of Jerusalem as well. And at that point, the Lord relented from the calamity, meaning he paused the judgment and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, behold, I have sinned, I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day up to David and said to him, go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. All right, so let's hold that detail that the Lord pauses the judgment and then the Lord through a prophet directs David to build an altar to the Lord in that location where the angels stopped the judgment, which would have wiped out all of the people of God had the Lord not stopped him. Now let's, from there, jump over to Second Chronicles chapter 3. The threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite, is where, and it's right near the city of Jerusalem, where the angel was intending to go next. And we'll now read 2 Chronicles 3. We're fast-forwarding to the next generation, the days of Solomon. He is about to build the temple of God, and we read this description. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, where? In Jerusalem, where? On Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David, his father, at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Ornan and Arun are just two different versions of the same individual uh, where that altar was first built by the Lord. That is now going to be the site of the temple because that altar was established exactly in David's day, built by David exactly at the same location that that altar of the temple of Solomon would be established. It was the location where the Lord's judgment stopped. It's a saving location, and it has everything to do with pointing all the way back to the sacrifice of Isaac and connects these great events. The connection is a great judgment, a well-deserved judgment, a judgment that's going to wipe out even the people of God, but the Lord stops the judgment at the location where Isaac was symbolically sacrificed by the one who represented God the Father offering his own son at the location where that pestilence plague was later stopped. And because it was stopped, it was a saving event. All right, so let's go back now to Genesis 22. So all of this is taking place at the location of where later the Temple of Solomon would be built. All of Genesis 22 is near Jerusalem at the temple site and the altar where David uh, built being the actual location where uh, you have Isaac being offered. All right, another detail. Verse 2, again, the very last phrase of verse 2, and offer him, that's Isaac, offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. The burnt offering is a special category. I don't have time tonight to go into all the details. I will just tell you that there are, there are five great offerings that were required by the Lord, five great sacrifices in the law of Moses that were to take place in the business, the daily business, in the yearly business of the temple as God's people maintained a right relationship with the Lord. And the most important of those offerings was the burnt offering. And it signified the one being offered or sacrificed being wholly given to that sacrifice. 
No part of it was withheld. It was entirely consumed in the sacrifice. This is pointing to the fullness of the sacrifice or sacrificial commitment of Christ to the saving work that only he could accomplish. Now, um, verse 5, jump down to verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, remember he had two young servants along with Isaac on this trip. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. He didn't take them up to the place of sacrifice. Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. And then this phrase, and come again to you. What is Abraham intending to do at this moment? This is before the sacrifice was offered. He hasn't even made the altar yet. He's intending to sacrifice his son. He, as far as he knows, because he does not know that the Lord is going to interrupt him, as far as he knows, he's going to plunge a knife into the heart of his son and sacrifice his son in obedience to the Lord. But he says these words, and he's either lying at this point in order to deceive the young men, or he is being guided by a prophetic influence of the Lord. I and the boy will go over there and worship. Sacrifice was part of worship and come again to you. So later in the New Testament, this phrase is described as Abraham in faith receiving his son, this is in the book of Hebrews, as alive again from the dead. This phrasing is Abraham's confidence prophetically that if he sacrifices his son and that son is the only one that can fulfill the covenant promises, then God will literally have to raise him again from the dead in order to fulfill those promises. And so this is again pointing forward to the saving work of Christ, not just in his sacrifice, but in his resurrection from the dead. Uh, verse 6, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Uh, how did Jesus get from his trial to the place of his crucifixion? He had wood laid upon his shoulders and he carried it there to the place of his sacrifice. And Isaac is portraying even that detail in a symbolic way. Verse 8. Uh, we, I highlighted this a moment ago. Uh, Abraham said, God will provide for himself. This is after his son asked, where's the sacrifice, dad? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And God did. In other words, the point is, the sacrifice that was necessary to actually save people, only God could provide for that. And so practically speaking, he did provide a ram to replace Isaac there on Mount Moriah that day. But spiritually speaking, it's pointing forward to only Christ, the provision of the Lamb of God for the salvation of those that God intended to save. That's the only way that this, this covenant promise could ultimately be fulfilled, the covenant promise of New Testament eternal salvation, only by the provision of Christ as the Lamb of God. Uh, verse 9 When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, uh, laid the wood in order and bound his, Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. So when Christ came to um, the place of his crucifixion, he bore the wood on his shoulders on the journey there. But once he got there, he laid the wood down and then the Roman soldiers laid him on the wood in order to nail his hands and feet. So the binding of Isaac is similar to the nailing of Christ. And just like Isaac was laid on the wood, Christ is laid on the wood of the cross in order to accomplish the saving purpose of the Lord. And then verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place. That's Mount Moriah, remember. That's Temple Mount in the future, remember. That's... Calvary, which is just outside, on the same mountain as the Temple Mount, just outside of the city, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. It is the salvation that only the sacrifice of the Son of God could accomplish. 
It's on that specific mountain. This is why the Lord directed Abraham, go to Moriah and go to a very specific mountain that I'll show you when you get there. And it's on that mountain that the Lord provided salvation. No other place on the surface of the earth uh, can ever be identified as a saving location other than that place where Christ was sacrificed. And then the last one, verse 16. This is the Lord speaking again. And by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And so this is again a tie, a connection to John 3.16, where God the Father, um, even though from a personal relationship standpoint with Christ, uh, would have certainly withheld his son from being sacrificed if there were any other way to accomplish the plan of salvation. But God the Father did not withhold his son, his only son who he dearly loved. And so uh, Abraham portrays this in the, his faithful willingness to sacrifice Isaac. And the Lord highlights it in order to draw that connection between Isaac and Christ in that saving sacrificial offer. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's study. Uh, next week, Lord willing, we have one last study on the saving, uh, or excuse me, the uh, Old Testament events that point to Christ. So we'll look at the Exodus and the Passover together. Feel free if you want to read ahead. We'll be in um, we'll be in Exodus chapters 12 and 13 as we consider uh, those events as they connect to Christ. God bless you. Thank you.